couple of weeks ago, we started looking at 1 Corinthians, and almost immediately, we were introduced to a problem in the Corinthian church. The members of this church are divided. They're quarreling over their favorite preachers. They're trying to align themselves with the leader they think is the most persuasive or the most eloquent or the most charismatic. And in one sense, it's not surprising they would do that because that is what they are used to. In Corinth, in the city itself, that is how people behave outside of the church. They try to attach themselves to the group that will give them the most prestige. And these Christians then are just bringing that same approach into the church, fighting amongst themselves for prestige. That's the issue Paul has to try to deal with as he writes to them. And he didn't start by dealing with it directly. Instead, we saw last week, he spoke about the cross of Jesus Christ. He pointed out, no one using human wisdom or intelligence would have brought salvation through a crucified Savior. The cross was a symbol of failure and dishonor. It was the most shameful, degraded way to die at that time. Human wisdom would never have brought salvation that way. Why? Because human wisdom is proud. It is impressed with itself. It believes that it knows best. And so it wants to be associated with things that are powerful and impressive. So human wisdom has no time for the cross except maybe to despise it. Who would put their hope in a crucified Savior? But Paul said to the Corinthians, that's exactly why God brought salvation through a crucified Savior. He brought salvation in a way that defies human pride. Pride is the root of our sin as human beings. And so in God's wisdom, the only way to receive his salvation is to humble ourselves. To set aside our pride and our love of attaching ourselves to things that impress other people. Putting our hope in the crucified Savior will not gain us any human prestige. It won't make us impressive in the eyes of this world, but it will save us. It will deliver us from the guilt and power of sin. It will deliver us from eternal death and lead us into eternal life. Paul is saying to these Corinthian believers, you're obsessed with status. You're obsessed with self-promotion. But that's out of step with God's way of salvation. Your own efforts to big yourselves up, they don't fit with the message of a crucified Savior. Self-exaltation is a denial of what the church is all about. And now having looked at the crucified Savior, in our passage this morning, Paul says, we've thought about the cross. Now let's think about the people of the cross. If God brought salvation in a way that defies human pride, what about the people he brought salvation to? We're going to read this morning from chapter 1, verse 26, through to chapter 2, verse 5. And if you haven't found that, it's in page 
1145 in the Green Bibles and 1771 in the Large Print Bibles. 1 Corinthians 126. Brothers and sisters, think of what you wear when you are called. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is God's word. Last week, Paul said, the message of the cross defies human pride. Now he points out that God's choice of people defies human pride. Paul says to the Corinthian believers, you're quarreling and fighting because you all want to be impressive. But let's just step back and reflect on your situation when the message about Jesus first came to you. That's what he means in verse 26 when he talks about when you were called. At the time you responded to the good news about Jesus, what was your status in society? What was your pedigree? Were you considered to be the cream of the crop in Corinth? Not at all. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. You'll notice Paul is careful to acknowledge and allow there are some people in the church from the upper levels of society. There are some who have influence. There are some who have reputation. Around the time of John Wesley, there was an aristocratic lady here in England called the Countess of Huntingdon. And she liked to say that she was saved by the letter M. In other words, if Paul had written, not any of you were of noble birth, well, that would have ruled out people like the Countess of Huntingdon. But the good news about Jesus is for all people, all kinds of people, It's for the rich and the powerful too. They are welcome in the kingdom of God. And in every era of the church, some of them 
have believed the message of the cross. But it also tends to be true that not many in the church are rich or powerful or wise by this world's standards. Frankly, most of us are nobodies in the eyes of this world. I've been in Leicester Square in London when there's been a movie premiere on. I've stood around there while crowds of people and photographers wait, sometimes for hours, just to catch a glimpse of the celebrities as they walk in on the red carpet. Have you ever seen that happen outside a church? Have you ever been held up in the car park because fans were trying to get selfies with you? No, we are not the kind of people crowds will ever gather to see. The church is open to that kind of people. It has a welcome for the rich and the influential. And here and there, a few of them do accept the message of the cross. But they're very definitely the exceptions. By and large, the church is full of nobodies. And Paul tells us here, God has done that deliberately. Having reminded us three times that not many in the church are impressive by human standards, now in verses 27 and 28, Paul tells us three times that God chose unimpressive people. God chose the foolish. God chose the weak. God chose the lowly and the despised and the things that are not. God preferred the nobodies over the somebodies. And that was not just true in Corinth. It's not just true here in Pelsol. It is a stable pattern in history in the way God works. Think all the way back to God's choice of Israel in the Old Testament, the descendants of Abraham. God said to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were more numerous or more impressive than all the other peoples. You were the fewest of all peoples, God said. And if we follow the way God works throughout the Old Testament, he also has a pattern of bypassing the firstborn. In the eyes of that culture, there was great prestige attached to being the firstborn. But again and again, God chose to give his blessing to the secondborn. Jacob over Esau. Ephraim over Manasseh. God even chose sometimes to give his blessing further down the line to the eighth born. When God sent the prophet Samuel to Jesse to anoint one of Jesse's sons as Israel's king, Samuel started with the firstborn, Eliab. Samuel assumed, well, he must be the one God had chosen. But God said no. And he kept on saying no until Samuel had stood in front of seven of Jesse's sons. Samuel was confused. He asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Jesse said, well, there is still the youngest, David, but we didn't even bother calling him in. He's the runt. He's out looking after the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. And when David arrived, God said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. 
And we could go on and on with other examples. The pattern is to be found all the way through Scripture. And yes, there are exceptions to it. Just to show influential people are not excluded from God's kingdom. Those born to privilege are not excluded. But the pattern is unmissable still. God preferentially chooses the nobodies. And here in our passage, we're even told why he does it. Verse 27, God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. This world values a certain kind of person. It's impressed by powerful intellect. So God deliberately chooses the simple. This world is impressed by wealth. So God deliberately chooses the poor. The world is impressed by people with influence. So God deliberately chooses those who don't have influence. And the purpose of all this, says verse 29, is so that no one may boast before him. Last time we saw there is no prestige to be gained in the eyes of this world by accepting the message of the cross. And now we see there's no prestige to be gained in the eyes of this world by associating with the people of the cross. If the rich and powerful, if the intellectual powerhouses are going to join with God's people, it can only happen when they cease to put any store by their riches and power and intellect. Because membership of the church will not enhance their reputation. The church is not a place where they'll be looked up to and pandered to because of their riches and power and intellect. At least the church is not supposed to be a place like that. That is not God's design for the church. God's design is that the things that are celebrated and applauded outside the church have no significance in the church. They mean nothing at all in the church. Because the things celebrated outside are all about human pride. And God works to defy and undercut human pride. It's God's design that no one joins the church in order to make their CV more impressive. God's design is that we can only join his people by humbling ourselves and admitting human accomplishments have no significance in the eyes of God. Some of us might feel that we have no trouble recognizing we're nobodies. Maybe the trouble we have is recognizing what God has made us. We'll come to that in a minute. But for some of us, it's a painful thing to admit that we're nobodies. Because maybe we do receive a bit of applause outside the church. Maybe we do have a bit of recognition. Maybe we have significant resources. And if that's the case, it's a big step to come to God on the same basis as all the nobodies. 
It's a big step to acknowledge my human wisdom and strength do not contribute anything to my salvation. They don't count for anything in the presence of God. It's a big thing to admit that before the cross, I'm just as naked and poor and unimpressive as every other sinner who comes to God for forgiveness. One preacher says, you will never find out how much God is till you realize how much you are not. You'll never find out how much God is till you realize how much you are not. God's choice of people defies human pride. We can only join his people by setting aside our pride. But sometimes we forget this. And we start thinking, if only more celebrities would become Christians, it would be great. It would really raise the profile of the church. They'd make the church more appealing to outsiders. They'd get more people in. And so when an athlete or a singer makes a profession of faith in Christ, they quickly get rushed onto church platforms and they have a microphone stuck in their face. So the world can see we do have some cool, impressive people in the church. But when we think and act that way, we're missing the point. God intends the church to be unimpressive in the eyes of the world. He intends there to be no coolness factor attached to the church. If there was a coolness factor, that would remove the need for men and women to humble themselves in order to enter the church. So by all means, let's pray for celebrities to become Christians. But let's make sure we pray for them because we want them to be saved and give glory to God. Let's make sure we're not praying for them because we want some celebrity cool attached to the church. So we can be more respectable in the eyes of the world. To pray with that kind of motivation is to pray contrary to God's purposes. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we were at the FIC conference, and Steve and I went to a session there. We heard a pastor talking about his experience in church, and he spoke about a couple in their 80s who had just joined his church. He's a pastor in a university town, and there are several different churches there. But this couple came to him, and they said, we were asked to leave our last church because we don't fit their demographic. They're aiming for younger people who have just more to offer, and we can't do very much. So they asked us to move on. The couple said to this pastor, Will you have us? We can pray for people. Doesn't that make you want to cry? And then say a few choice words to the leader that asked them to leave. Isn't that a monumental failure to recognize God's intention for the church? 
No doubt the leaders of that particular church think they know what they're doing. They reckon that elderly couples make the church less appealing to students and younger people. So if you want to brand yourself as cutting edge and impressive, then it makes sense to ask unimpressive people to move on. It makes sense if you're thinking that way, only to have energetic, trendy, good-looking people leading the music and the other ministries. But that thinking and that approach undermines God's design for the church. When people visit church, they should not leave the church thinking we are a high-class operation. They should leave the church thinking we're a low-class operation with a few exceptions just to prove we don't exclude those who are high-class. They can fit in too. Visitors to church should leave with the realization, from a human point of view, I have nothing to gain from joining this community of people. It will not enhance my reputation in this world. And then if they do join, it will be because they are humbling themselves to accept the message of the cross. They're joining the people of the cross, not in order so that they will be served, but in order that they can serve. They'll be aiming not to be praised for their wisdom and their power, but to praise God who saves by his mercy and grace. So we've already begun to see how God's design for the church should impact those of us who belong to the church and the way we Think about church and behave in church. That's what the second half of our passage then focuses on. God's people celebrate God's wisdom and power, not their own. Paul has told us three times that God intentionally makes the church unimpressive to human eyes. But that does not mean the church really is unimpressive. In fact, the church that looks unimpressive is in reality a glorious, amazing thing. It's something to be in awe of. As members of the church, we have endless reason to celebrate. Why? Because of what God has made of us. We, who are nobodies in the eyes of this world, have been transformed into somebodies in the eyes of God. We, who have next to nothing in terms of what this world values or what it considers significant, we have received from God things of eternal value and significance. We've received those things not by our own wisdom and power, but by responding in faith to the message of the cross. Putting our faith in the crucified Savior. Look at verse 30. Speaking of God, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts 
Boast in the Lord. God chose us nobodies and showed us the true wisdom of trusting in Jesus. He is our righteousness. We could never put ourselves in a right standing with God. But Jesus has done that for us. He's also our holiness. We could never purify ourselves so we'd be worthy of a place in God's presence. But Jesus gives us his purity. And he's our redemption. We could never liberate ourselves from the slavery of sin. But Jesus paid the price to liberate us. As God's people, we have more reason to celebrate than anyone else. We have massive things to boast about. In Christ, God has taken us nobodies and made us somebodies. We who are foolish and weak and lowly in this world's eyes have been given wisdom and strength and glory from God. So the challenge for us is not to eradicate boasting in the church, not to do away with it. The challenge is to make sure we're boasting about the right things. That we're celebrating God's wisdom and power, not our own. And in the Corinthian church, the application of that is very obvious. All of this should put a stop to their rivalry. It should end their appetite for fighting over who's the best preacher. It should expose the silliness of trying to enhance their status by latching onto the most impressive leader. Mark Dever says, when your boasting is only in God, it's hard to get proud and defensive and divisive. It's hard to get caught up in personality contests when the goal of our gatherings is to humble ourselves and exalt Christ. In Christ, we already have the only prestige that matters. We have holiness, righteousness, and redemption. Why on earth would we want to fight for human recognition and reward? Why would we fall out over something so utterly insignificant as that? Jesus said the truth will set you free. And here the truth of what God has made us in Christ sets us free from the miserable, the exhausting fight to be someone in the eyes of other people. To somehow squeeze a little bit of self-respect by earning their praise or their high opinion. It's soul-destroying to try and live that way. And if you're not a Christian, you need to know there is another way to live. Give up trying to impress the world and get your affirmation from other people. Humble yourself before God. Trust in his crucified Savior and he will lift that burden off your shoulders. You can celebrate his affirmation. And those of us who are Christians, we can all fall back into that fight for recognition, grasping after a little bit of status. 
And each time we find ourselves falling back into it, we need to remember we already have eternal divine recognition and status. Let's celebrate the fact that we are someone in the eyes of God. That in Christ, he is well pleased with us. Well, we could do with an example of how this works out in practice, what it looks like in practice. And that's what Paul gives us in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. An example of celebrating God's wisdom and power, not our own. We saw back in chapter 1, one of the factions in the Corinthian church wants to make Paul their man. They want to get behind him as their great leader. But Paul has already said he wants nothing to do with that. He's not going to participate in the personality contest. Because that would undermine the message he's preaching. And here again, Paul looks back to the time he spent in Corinth. And he says, try to remember how I went about things when I was with you. Think about the example I tried to set for you. He says in verse 1, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom. Now we know Paul could have come that way. He had the skills to impress a crowd with his technique and his oratory. He had the training for that. But he made a conscious decision not to try and sway people with his cleverness. That would just have been feeding their addiction to human power and wisdom. Paul didn't want to attract people to himself. So he says in verse 2, I resolved, in other words, it was a deliberate decision on my part, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that doesn't mean Paul never ever spoke about anything else. While he was in Corinth, he spent part of his time working as a tent maker. So he's not saying he refused to tell people the price of his tents. No, he means in my preaching and my witnessing, I put my emphasis on Christ crucified. That was my message. I didn't get involved in trying to gain a following for myself or trying to build a reputation for myself. Paul says, I wanted to win followers for Jesus. I wanted to enhance his reputation as the only hope of salvation. In verse 3 he says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. That may mean he had a sense of personal inadequacy. It may mean he was pretty worried about his personal safety. But it does not mean that Paul went about his gospel work timidly. It doesn't mean that he hesitatingly suggested Jesus to people. Sometimes as Christians we imagine that's probably the humble thing to do. To propose to people that Jesus might possibly be the answer they need. That he may be worth looking into if you ever have the inclination to do that. But there's a world of difference between humility about ourselves, which is what Paul is talking about, and humility about our message. 
Paul's being honest about his own weakness, but he has no doubts whatsoever about the power of his message. Notice in verse 2, he came to Corinth, he says, and he proclaimed the testimony about God. Proclaimed is a strong word. When you proclaim something, you're announcing it. You're not suggesting it. Paul was low-key about his own ability, but he was bold about the message God had given him. He had confidence in God's wisdom, not his own. That's how it should be. But as Christians, there's always the temptation for us to flip it around. And so we can get involved in trying to impress people with our own smartness, our own up-to-dateness. And that can lead us then almost to apologize for the message of the cross. As if, well, God's a bit severe calling people to admit their sin and humble themselves beneath the cross. We can end up being very humble about our message and quite pleased with ourselves. Paul didn't make that mistake. He got it the right way around. He says in verse 4, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. It's worth pointing out what Paul says here would not have made him look good in Corinth. Real speakers in Corinth did parade their own cleverness. Paul's approach wouldn't have gained him any admirers. In our context, faking humility might well impress people. It didn't have that effect in Corinth. There's simply no chance Paul was trying to impress people in a roundabout way. By choosing to speak plainly, he really was sacrificing his own chance to look good. And another mistake we might make is to think, well, Paul didn't plan what he was going to say then. He didn't prepare carefully, or maybe he didn't care whether people even understood him. That's not true either. There's a genuine sense in which Paul did want to persuade people. But he wanted to do it in such a way that instead of people saying, what a great preacher, they'd say, what a great saviour. That's the difference. If people respond to Paul's proclamation, he doesn't want it to be because he manipulated them with a clever technique. He wants it to be because the Spirit of God took Paul's clear presentation of the truth and he brought it to people's hearts with life-changing power. That, I think, is what Paul means by a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Certainly when Paul uses similar language in other places, that's what he's talking about. The Spirit bringing the message home. But some people have read this and wondered, well, is Paul talking about miracles that he did in Corinth? Is that what he means by a demonstration of the Spirit's power? Well, it's possible But as I just mentioned, that's not what he means when he speaks like this in other places. And in fact, that would go against his whole point in this passage. 
This is all about how God's wisdom defies human pride. God's way of salvation calls people to humble themselves. So it would be strange, to say the least, if Paul's saying, I went out of my way not to wow you with impressive oratory, I did it with impressive miracles instead. Now the way people's faith will rest on God's power is when the simple message of the cross melts their proud hearts and brings them to kneel before the cross in repentance and worship. That is evidence of the Holy Spirit's power at work. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says to these believers, you yourselves are my letter of commendation. You're the proof of the authenticity of my ministry. Your lives have been changed by the spirit of the living God. You are my legacy in Corinth. There's no statue of me in the main square of Corinth. There's no street named after me. There's not even a plaque at the town hall commemorating my contribution to Corinthian society. There's none of that. I did nothing that they find significant or impressive. But as I proclaim the message of the cross, God did something impressive. He brought you Christians from darkness to light. He saved you. He gave you righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And so, Paul says, let your faith rest in God and his crucified Savior. Not in me, not in any other human leader. That's Paul's own example of how God's people celebrate God's power and wisdom, not their own. And as you and I seek to serve God in various ways, as we work together as a church to try and do that, let's remember our success as a church does not come from being impressive. It doesn't come from being high-powered and flashy. It comes from everything we do pointing men, women, and children to the God who chooses nobodies and turns them into somebodies. Not somebodies in the eyes of this world, but in the eyes of God. That is liberating. To know that what we're doing doesn't depend on us being slick. We do our very best, of course we do. But we're not depending on our very best being good enough to change lives. It's the message we proclaim. That's what God uses to change lives. So in everything we do, let's celebrate his wisdom and power, not our own. Let's do that now as we respond together to what we've heard. We're going to begin by boasting in his great mercy to us. And then we'll commit to live for his glory alone.